jokingly said that this morning could be my absolute greatest sermon that you're ever going to hear from me um, because it has minimal of my words. So this is actually a different kind of sermon uh, than, than I've gotten to preach. And I'm actually more excited about it because it really is, it puts scripture there for you uh, more than my understanding of scripture, right? And I do believe that God calls pastors and preachers to just have a unique wisdom and insight into the word. He calls them to to study throughout the week and to think and pray for the people and to to really speak to that congregation that's under that pastor. I believe all those things. And, and that's how I tend to operate. Um, and here's where that led me this week. It's, it's going to be the reading of John 19, 1 through 42, a lot of reading. And then it's going to be readings from Acts and Galatians and Leviticus and, and uh, Romans. It's just going to be Scripture after Scripture because... Here's the moment that we've really been building up to in the, in the book of John. I mean, remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And that's a lot like Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But, but even before in the beginning of Genesis, there was in the beginning of the beginnings, there was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And we've been tracking through John all the way up to this, this moment. And what I really didn't want to do with John 19 is be tempted to give you any emotional or extra scriptural push in a direction. I just, I believe in the sufficiency of scripture. And I know we say that. I know we say scripture is enough, but it says that the word of God is living and active. It's a two-edged sword. So what my thought was, Lord, you just want me to read John 19, 1 through 42. Like that's the sermon. Like that's all you want. Okay. Like I was really excited. And then, uh, God woke me up at 4.30 yesterday morning, and He's like, by the way, you're going to put all these scriptures with it too. But I think that John 19, 1-42, if we did nothing but read it, it would be enough. Like, let's just say that we read John 19, 1-42, and then the chainsaws start back up over here, and then something happens out here on the road, and we have to disperse. I believe that God's Word really is that sufficient, that it will cut into us and do the work it needs to. That that seed will be sown. At the same time, I feel like he did say, yes, but, but cross Life Fort Smith, look at, look at what it is finished really means for you. And so we're going to be in a lot of scripture this morning. So if you're sitting close to somebody, you might um, do like WWF tag team partners. You're like, okay, I've got this one. Um, and then somebody's going to grab this one over here. Um, that way you can kind of look or you can just jot down notes. But we already cover a lot of scripture. You're going to hear more of the word, less of me. Praise the Lord. That's why I can say you're probably going to love this one more than anything else. Um, and I am absolutely okay with that. But we're going to read John 19, 1 through 42. And y'all, this is where we are. The final sufferings and the death of Christ. Here we go. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, Jesus, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. 
The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it would have been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about to be the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Gogotha. And there they crucified him, him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus, Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this actually was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John who's writing this gospel, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing all that was... Sorry. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus, with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. and That that would be John referring to himself. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him who they pierced. 
After these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, do y'all remember Nicodemus from chapter 3? Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in a garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Lord God, may my heart always be broken by the fact that you laid down your life willingly for me, for your believers that day, for believers who, who trusted in, in God, in the Old Testament, that he would do what you said you would do. And Lord, that you would die for us today. Your cross not only sufficient for our past sins, but your cross sufficient for the sins that we still struggle with and commit today and in the future. Your cross for one time, for all saints, perfecting us. But Lord, you had to lay down your life for that. And the good shepherd did lay down his life. So Lord, help us now to see that when you said it is finished, what is it that you would have us as Cross Life Fort Smith to see is finished on our behalf? Lord God, we love you. Amen. So all I want to do right now, just some reflections that we can see from Scripture of when Jesus just accomplished what he set out to accomplish, right? From all of John, from the beginning to end, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And then all of a sudden his hour came and here we are. And this is the reason he came. And, and it's not Easter and we're talking about the death of Christ. Right, And we're dwelling on it because the truth is we need that. We need reminders of His death, not to bring us down, but to remind us that we are His. We always talk about the free gift of God, and it is a free gift of God. Salvation is. It is the free gift of God by His grace, but that free gift on our side was because He spent His life for us. Especially with everything going on right now. Going on right now keep in mind, that we are His people purchased by the blood of the cross. He did not relent at all. I have six, six reflections for us. There's a book that I don't know where it landed. Uh, it's, it's by John Piper, and I say I don't know where it landed. Um, it's, I used to have it on my bookshelf. It might be on the Richmond's bookshelves now that I say that, but it's 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die by John Piper. It's a really thin book. And, and each page is just one reason that Jesus came to die. It's a great book. I love it. But um, by the way, anything that's on my shelf, you can borrow. That's what some of those are over here on the table. Books that you can read, books that you can take. But um, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. That's what John Piper wrote this devotional book on. Uh, and those don't even really begin to touch the fullness of what Jesus did. So these six today do not in any way touch on the fullness of all that God did. They're just six quick reflections for us today that as I was preparing, felt like God kept saying, yes, but, but make sure this is known. Make sure that this is, is what's in front of the people um, of Cross Life today. So what I'm going to say is my, my, my concern is this is not every aspect of what Christ did on the cross. There's no way in six 
categories we can do that. Also, what Christ accomplished is entirely too vast for one sermon or book. And then there are mysteries that no writer in this world can fully understand with what Christ did on the cross. He shifted the cosmos in a way that we can't understand. He dealt in an eternal time in levels of, of existence that we can't grasp. We can grasp this and the bird that sometimes begins to sing like, we're like, we get all that. We get the tangibles. But there, there's, there's an ocean that's way too deep and we're going to be swimming in that for all of eternity and it's all because of what Christ did on our behalf. So here we go. What these are is that if every pastor is to shepherd his flock, I prepare with, with you in mind in light of the Scripture and what God would have, have us to learn. And usually that's, that's verse by verse. And what that meant for this week is, no, like these are reflections from what, what I'm revealing and what, what we need to know from John 19. So, number one, I'm going to give you all six. Here, like here are the categories of what Christ did. And then we're going to start looking at Scripture. Quick synopsis of the points. What, whenever John writes in 1930... When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished, man, that all is accomplished, right? So six, six reflections for us this morning. Number one, he accomplished the Father's will. It was finished. The Father's will was absolutely done, and we're going to look at Scripture for that. And the Scripture will clearly communicate that to you. Number two, he laid down his life just as he said he would. It is finished. It is done. All is accomplished. Number three, he became our sacrifice. Because you and I hanging on a cross is not sufficient. So he became our sacrifice. It's finished. Sacrifice is done. Number four, he forgave us of our sins. Not just then, but now and forevermore. It's done. It's finished. All is accomplished. Number five, he crushed Satan's head and disarmed the spiritual darkness. It's done. Like it's been accomplished. It is finished. And number six, he, he uh, I put proved. That's not the right word, so let me change that. He demonstrated his worthiness is our, our last point. He demonstrated his worthiness. It's finished. And we're going to land in Revelation 5 here at the very end where all of heaven, all of creation, all of the people, all of all the creatures, all the angels, all the myriads and myriads of the voices in the angelic realms are going to be crying out, worthy are you because you spilled your blood. And so that's our framework. All right, so you're going to need your Bible. Hope you drank your coffee. Um, we're going to be moving and we're going to go quickly and, and um, we're going to be all over the place. And so I'm really a big fan of, of, of paper Bibles. But this might be one of those days, too, where if you've got your phone and you've got a digital Bible, you might be able to actually jump quicker um, or jump smoother or, or whatever you want. Um, it's also a good place where you can highlight those passages and then go back and copy them into a document. But we're going to move through a lot of Scripture today. So, number one, he said it is finished. What is finished? Number one, he accomplished the Father's will. Got about Got about three references for you, even though that's not enough. But that's not all of them, but, but three references. Go to Acts 2, 22 through 23. It 
Some of these I'll read out loud and you can just jot them down. Some of them we'll, we'll look at together. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 23. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves know, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He fulfilled the perfect plan of God. Flip to the next chapter, 318. Acts 3.18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. So this is just a reminder, real quick. He is fulfilling all that God planned for Him. Even though there were lawless men who crucified and killed Him, it was only by God's perfect plan. And that's what you and I need to hold on to because as the world seems a little skewed right now and things seem really um, out of whack and we don't know what to do with all of that, we have to understand that God operates in a way that we don't. And that included His Son coming, a perfect sacrifice. I know we read it at the very, very beginning, but now flip all the way to your, keep going to your left. You're going to go to Isaiah 53, 6-10. Isaiah 53, 6-10. Isaiah was written about 700 years before Christ was born. And so when Isaiah is writing, you'll notice that he writes in the present, but then he'll also use the past. You know, the, or he'll use what we call the present perfect. That's a, an English, that's another tense that's out there. But he's writing with a, basically what we call a prophetic past. Isaiah is writing about something in the future as though it's already been done. And so he's writing about Christ having already accomplished these things 700 years ago before it ever happens. So this is just to further show us that Christ came and he fulfilled exactly what God wanted him to. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we, cross life, we're there, all we. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And what did God do? The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, that's what we've been watching over the last few weeks. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, we heard him today, as for his generation, they consider that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken, but for the transgression of his people, for my people. And then we also saw this today. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now look at verse 10. Acts chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 10 These kind of wrecked my theology for a while. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That was the will of the Lord. Remember, Jesus prays in the garden, if you will take this cup from me, please do. 
And Luke records the, the sweat of blood and, and everything that Jesus is enduring, that highly stressful moment. And then he says, but not my will, but yours. And I will drink the cup. And he drinks the cup. And it was that cup. It was the will of the Lord to crush him from the beginning. Goes on in 10. Sorry. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God, has put him, Jesus, to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, Jesus, shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You know what's really cool about that? It is finished and Jesus sees his offspring right here. Like we are part of the offspring by the will of the Lord that Christ was crushed and we rise from that because of what he did. So that's, that's it. Point number one, he accomplished the Father's will. And there are many, many other verses. You're probably like, yeah, but Ricky, you forgot this one. You forgot this one. Okay, we have limited time. I have ADD and ADHD, and I know you do too, and that bird's not going to stop. Okay? <laughs> We're going to keep going. I keep hearing the buzzing of the, the honeybees or whatever I've already There you go. <laughs> Number two, he said it is finished. What, what are we looking at? He laid down his life just as he said he would. I want to look at that. May we never forget that though he prayed that the cup would pass, he sacrificed himself. He laid down his life just as he said he would. Go to John chapter 10. We're going to be in John chapter 10 for two verses, and then we're going to move on to our third point. But while you're turning to John chapter 10, don't forget what the other gospels show us, that when they came for him by night into the garden, he said to them, why do you come to me with clubs and torches? I could call down the angels and I could stop you. He had that kind of authority. He even says to Pilate in, in John 19, you have no authority except that God gave you the authority. In other words, you can only touch me because God's letting you do this. So don't forget that he has the authority. So number two, he lays down his life just as he said he would. John 10, I'm sorry, John chapter 10, verse 11. says, I am the good shepherd. And what does a good shepherd do? The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Go seven verses later. And here's what Jesus says. He's talking about his own life. In John 10, 18, he says, no one takes it from me. Now, he says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And watch this. And authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So God, in His perfect will, has given to Jesus the authority to lay down His own life. So Jesus is the authority of His life in this moment. He can choose not to. He's the authority, but He will be completely submissive and obedient to God's will, which was our first point, and He will lay down His life. But He has such power and authority that when He's dead and He's laid down His life, he has the power and authority that he gets to pick that life back up. When I die, I'm dead. I have no authority anymore. The only way that my body will rise again is if God speaks and brings me from the dead. Christ has the authority to lay it down, and he has such an incredible authority that he picks his own life back up. Number three, when he said, It is finished and bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Here's what was finished for you and me. We got several verses here. He became our sacrifice 
because our sin deserves death. We're going to put that on a coffee cup. Okay? Our sin deserves death. We're not really, by the way. If you're like, that's a horrible marketing campaign, Ricky. You shouldn't do that. I love the promises uh, that God gives us. I'm, I'm telling you, cling to those promises. Proclaim those promises. Nothing against that. Rest in those promises. But those promises were purchased by His sacrifice. He became our sacrifice because our sin deserves death. Let's start in uh, 2 Corinthians. The reason I'm having this turn is because these are great verses also. If you don't have them underlined in your Bible or marked, these are great verses you've probably heard or referenced or... Um, and, and you have them marked already, or if not, these are great ones to have marked, to, to just bury in your heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. says this, For our sake, and Paul is writing, and who's the our? Our sake. For believers' sake. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So just to clarify the He's and the Him's. For our sake, for for believers' sake, God made Jesus to be sin even though Jesus had no sin so that in Jesus we believers might become the righteousness of God. He became our sacrifice. Why? So that you and I could become the righteousness of God. So, Side pastoral note, could we like see the fullness of that and quit piddling with every little sin that comes along because we're called to be the righteousness of God because of the death of Christ. The righteous one died so that we could be righteous. He took our sin, slayed it, killed it, put it to death so it has no hold over us whatsoever so that unbound we can pursue Christ. Right? Pastoral moment. Still going, just changing. Okay, fun one. Leviticus 16. You got to find Leviticus. Start flipping to your left. Start with Genesis and go to your right. You'll find it quicker that way. This, I just threw this one in there. Number one is just for trivia. Like, let's go to the Old Testament real quick. But also as a way to say that even in the law, Christ was present. And this is just one glimpse of it. But we know from the New Testament, we understand that every festival, every sacrifice, every special day, they were all what Paul calls shadows of the substance of who Christ was. So every one of those festivals, they were looking at how God provided for them, how their sin was grievous to them, how God sustained them in these moments. Those were all pictures of what we know of what Christ actually does for us. Okay, so in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 10. But the goat... This is just fun. You should have all brought your goat today, okay? Because when you're a church plant and you're meeting in someone's backyard and you're wondering, people are like, what are y'all doing over there? You're like, well, we were in Leviticus 16.10 today. um, And so everybody's like preparing their goat for the sacrifice. So when you visit, bring your own goat, okay? So Leviticus 16.10, but the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make purification by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Just saying, y'all, this is a picture of what Christ did for us. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What they would do with the scapegoat is there would be one chosen by Watts, um, which in other words, it would seem like a random thing to us. And probably the closest thing we have 
would be taking some dice and rolling it and seeing how the, how the lots fell, basically. And so the lots would fall to this one goat that God had chosen through, through this process of lots. And it's not dice. They weren't playing dice. And they would have a method by which they would read what's going on here and understand the will of the Lord. And so here's this one goat. And what they would do is they would literally pray in such a way that they were putting their sins onto this goat. Like they weren't laying anything literally on it, but they would, their sins were being placed on this goat and then they would send it out into the wilderness. And it went out into the wilderness. It was taking their sins away from the community. Much like Christ who knew no sin becomes a scapegoat for us. We don't like the word scapegoat. Whenever our kids and, and we're trying to find like a way to offload like our guilt, we have a, we have a scapegoat. And so here's the scapegoat of that corporation, the scapegoat for our brothers and sisters. We don't like that, but you know what? Christ was our scapegoat. That was a momentary picture, a small, minuscule picture of the Lord choosing one who would take the sins of many out into the wilderness and away from the people so that they could be pure before him again. And Christ took our sin, became our scapegoat on the cross, and our sin is gone. <clears throat> The Old Testament is really, really cool whenever you start looking at all of it through the substance of Christ. And you start seeing, oh, this is a picture. right? Abraham laying Isaac. But God lets him relent. And Christ had to, had to be the sacrifice. It was the will of the Lord not to pull him back as he allowed Abraham to pull his son. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're still in the he became our sacrifice because our sin deserves because our sin deserves death. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. If nothing else, then whenever you leave here today, you've been refreshed on your Bible and, and you know you can jump back and forth. And I, some of you are having that moment, you know, it's like whenever you're in elementary and the teacher says, turn to page three, 317, you're like, and you're looking around like you turned right to it. You're so excited. You knew where it was. Your wanted badge is still like you got it. Okay, First Corinthians chapter one verse thirty. Paul writes, "It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us." Y'all check this out. Wisdom from God. Jesus Christ is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. In Christ, we have all we need for righteousness and holiness and redemption. Not just memory verses, but He made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And what does that mean? It means we have wisdom from God because of Christ. We can be righteous. We can be holy. We can be redeemed. And we are redeemed because of that. So He is our sacrifice so that we get all of those benefits. Go to Galatians chapter 3. So you're in 1 Corinthians, so just... Um, you got your smaller books that, that show up after uh, Romans and after uh, I just lost my place Romans and you got your Corinthians and you got some smaller books right there you got Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians like they're all like right there together okay alright so we're in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 we did this one a couple of weeks ago but I want to make sure that we get it Galatians 3 13 we're going to move kind of Kind of quickly through this one. Christ, so Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why or how? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 
Listen to 1 John 2.2, which is further to your right. But 1 John 2.2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation means He is the absolute, full, and satisfying sacrifice for all that God requires on our behalf. But not just for us right here, but His death is sufficient and full enough to encompass the sins of the entire world even though the entire world doesn't call on His name. But that's the depth of it. So all of these things I'm telling you today are for those who are believers, who say I'm a Christian, they live as a Christian, they trust as a Christian, they are living life as a Christian exactly as God wants. But His death is sufficient enough that if all of the sins of the world for all of time were brought together, His cross is that deep and that vast. Now Romans 3.25 it's close to you and where you are. So go to Romans 3.25. And then we're going to go on to verse 4. Or I'm sorry, section 4. If nothing else, then you're going to know the, a glimpse of the fullness of the Gospel and, and how all these pieces come together. So whenever he says it is finished and his hour is done, what did he do? Romans 3.25, God presented Him, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice through faith in His blood. That actually kind of overlaps with one because it was the will of the Lord to touch Him. Here, God says, oh, my people need an atoning sacrifice. Here's my Son who will be born in a manger, and I'm going to let Him grow up before men, and nobody's going to look at Him. He's going to have no sense of majesty. Like, there's nothing in Him that seems remarkable. And I'm going to put Him forth as an atoning sacrifice. It's my will to crush Him for your sake. He made him an atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood in order to demonstrate his righteousness. This is going to help us with a lot of the Old Testament and with our lives too. Because in his forbearance and in his patience, he had passed over the sins committed beforehand. When Jesus says it is finished, he meant the sacrifice is done. Right? You and I probably need to be reminded of that as we struggle with sin in our lives and we feel like failures in the moment and the darkness seems absolutely heavy. You need to remember that he said it is finished and what he meant is that all is accomplished. And what all was accomplished? He was fully your sacrifice for the fullness of your sins. Okay, so you need to hear this one. He forgave us our sins by his blood. That's point four. Whenever he says it is finished, he forgave us of our sins by his blood. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. I'll read it to you. And you can begin to John 3.16. We know that one, okay? So get to John 3.16. But Acts 10.43 says this, All the prophets testify about Him. So every single prophet. Andy mentioned Isaiah earlier. You go to Zephaniah, Zechariah, Jonah, like every prophet, everyone who is moved by God... All the prophets testify, testify about Him that everyone who believes in Him, listen to this, receives forgiveness of sins through His name. So, He is the forgiveness. If you believe in Christ, He is the forgiveness of sins for everyone who believes in His name. Look at John 3.16. But we're going to go 3.16-18. through 18. For God so loved the world 
And I'm going to stop right there. Sometimes in different theological camps and different kinds of churches, we, we develop a right theology that God has wrath and, and God hates sin and God um, despises wickedness. And we know that that's in us. So sometimes we have this, this view of a very angry, domineering, disappointed God. And I'm saying He has wrath. He hates sin. He does not love wickedness at all. But sometimes whenever we get in those camps, we forget something so simple, that God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him, in Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is forgiveness of your sins. Not only the moment of your conversion, like at the cross right here in the past, but in this moment right now and in the future, there's a full forgiveness of sins. Sins that we don't even know we're going to commit. He, knowing all things, died for our sins. Colossians chapter 3. So it's going to be one of the smaller books after you get past uh, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. You're going to get to your smaller letters that Paul wrote. Colossians is tucked right in there. Verses 13 through 14. And you, cross life, and you who were dead in your trespasses, that sins, Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So, um, translate that, you who were dead in your sins and you weren't believers. That's what the uncircumcision of the flesh means. You weren't believers, you weren't following after God. Watch this, God made alive together with Him, Jesus. Watch this, having forgiven all of our trespasses. And then it goes on. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. I want to look at it one more time. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive. How did He make you alive? And forgive all your trespasses. He did it by this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And the last part, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. I was just joking. Colossians chapter 2. Here we go. I think y'all got the wrong copy of the Bible. Colossians 2, I'm sorry. Uh, That was Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. Now that we're all there. No, I'm sorry about that. And you who were dead in your sins and your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made us alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Not past, but present, future. And He did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And look how He did it. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Funny how God uses the pictures of the cross and, and such an apt and appropriate thing. But we all um, understand what debt is. And 
We had a debt that had to be paid because of our sin. That debt was death. He became our sacrifice. And he said he took that whole record of debt, the entire list of everything that you absolutely failed to do, all the wickedness that we stack against us, all of that is right there with its legal demands. It demands that we die for that sin. And Christ took it. He didn't nail it this way to the cross, but he put his hands out and he took the nails. And that's our debt that was paid on the cross. So he took all of that debt that you and I feel. And he's like, forget it. It's done. So go to Hebrews 10, 17. Praise the Lord for Hebrews 10, 17. There is a concern while you're turning there to Hebrews. There's a concern whenever you start preaching about grace and forgiveness. And I've heard pastors say, well, then everyone just... What if everybody just decides that they can start sinning like crazy because it's all forgiven? That's a hard issue, but I think that grace, grace rightly understood, does lead to that logical conclusion. And people are like, well, if it's all paid for, if it's all been forgiven, and we can just do it over and over and over. Why not? And I would say that we remember the sacrifice of Christ, and we understand the weight of it, and we don't want to. So it's not, is it a possibility? Absolutely it is. Is it a desire? Not in the Christian. So Hebrews 10, 17. So I wanted to, I wanted to put some context there because of this. I want you to hear Cross Life Fort Smith believers and anybody who, we have people who listen to our podcast. By the way, we have a podcast. Okay. My wife did not know that. Um, but whoever listens to it, hear this, Hebrews 10, 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin needed. He remembers your sins no more. Why? Because of the great mercy and grace of God. Does it mean we can be flipping about it? No. It means that his, his sacrifice, his forgiveness is so full that we don't understand the depth of it. We don't need to keep revisiting and paying penance for anything because it's fully satisfied. Okay. Number five says this. He, uh, the, the reflection is he crushed Satan's head and disarmed the spiritual darkness. This is just cool to me. Okay. Genesis chapter three. You can find Genesis. All right. So go all the way to your left, right after the table of contents. So Genesis chapter three. We're getting close. Y'all have been absolutely amazing journeying through this together. As I was reading all these verses, my heart was just lifted more and more um, by the fullness of what God did. He crushed Satan's head. He disarmed the spiritual darkness. Genesis chapter three. Look at verse 15. This is what we call the Proto-Evangelicum. So whenever you're having coffee with someone this week, just be like, we talked about the Proto-Evangelicum at church. What'd you do? Okay. The Proto-Evangelicum. It's the first gospel proclaimed. Exactly. Just do it as you're taking a, cup of, taking a drink of coffee. Genesis 3.15. God is laying out his curse, right? And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Like singular, the offspring is right there. Watch this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So on the cross, it is finished. Satan's head was crushed. It was bruised. He stomped on that head. Go to John 12, 31. I just wanted you to see in the very beginning, this was the plan that there would be an offspring. And all of Israel was waiting for that offspring 
for that Messiah who would come and who would deliver them from the oppression of the serpent. John 12, 31. We preach this, but I wanted it to be a reminder. Right now we're at John 19. Okay, we're, We just looked at the final sufferings and death of Jesus. Back in John 12, 31, there was a verse. Jesus said then, now, like at that point, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, what? Be cast out. He lost his authority then. Right? There's another, another verse in Scripture where it says, that um, it refers to how Jesus came in, he broke into the strong man's house, and he bound the strong man so that he could plunder the strong man's house. And it's referencing how Jesus came in, and Satan no longer had authority, and Jesus just started sweeping the floor with him and healing whoever he wanted to. Colossians chapter 2. And then after that, we're going to go to Ephesians. And then we're going to move on to our next one. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Unless we forget, or lest we're tempted to think that Jesus was meek and mild, and, and uh, we have this idea of a hippie Jesus. Um, Colossians two fifteen. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He was absolutely victorious. Now, I think that refers to Pilate, to Caesar, to the Jews. But I think it also, we need to be thinking about Ephesians 6, that we do not war with flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the spiritual darkness that's around us in this very moment that we cannot see, that there are rulers and authorities in that darkness. Chaos, or I'm sorry, um, the darkness of the world, Satan's realm is not chaotic. It's actually very organized if you look at Ephesians 6. And so... This tells us, though, that Christ came and in His death and in in His work, His gospel, He disarmed the rulers and authorities in this world and in the other world, and He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Ephesians 4, I'll just, I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Ephesians 4, verse 8 through 10. And I'll probably just, I might just do verse 8, but you can look at it all. Therefore, it says in Ephesians 4, 8, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And so if you slow down and you understand what's what's happening there. um, Oh, forget it. Nine and ten too. In saying he ascended, right? What does it mean by that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? So he died. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so that that Ephesians 4, 8 for me, picture it. He ascended on high. And he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. It's almost like this parade processional and the victor is out front. And so here is Christ ascending on high and he has all the captives behind him. And as he's going, he's giving gifts to men. He's giving gifts to the church. And you keep reading through Ephesians and you understand that Christ um, and, and the church is a great mystery and that he gave the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That's one of the reasons that we do church the way we do. But he's leading a host of captives. Christ disarmed Satan and all the spiritual forces of darkness. So we have to be careful with the devil made, we do, made me do it. No, he didn't. He tempted. But we sinned because we wanted to sin. Right, Jackson? That's what we've been looking at in the book of James, he and I. Okay. Now, last reflection, and then we're going to conclude. He, he demonstrated his worthiness. Please turn to Revelation chapter 5 and let's read that together. And then we will finish.
Revelation 5. John's writing. And in Revelation 4, John has been, uh, by the way, called up in the Spirit. He's seeing heaven in a way that, that we can't see right now. He's getting this glimpse of it. And in Revelation 4, he sees the one who is seated on the throne, like the precious jewels, the carnelian, the jasper, the sapphire. And um, as the one who's on the throne speaks, there's thunder and lightning, and, and there's a glass sea, and there's elders all around it. And then in Revelation 5, this is what happens. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I, John, I saw a lamb standing, look at this, as though it had been slain. So there's a lamb standing there amidst the throne of God, and it's though it's been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's another sermon, okay? And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Y'all know who gets to approach the throne of God and take anything from the throne of God when nobody's found worthy? Only God. Only one is worthy. And he went, he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. By the way, when we pray, there we are in Revelation chapter five, in the great throne room of everything happening, there are prayers before the throne of God and the golden bowls of incense. Verse nine, it gets really good. And then they, all of them began to sing a new song saying, <clears throat> Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and cross life. Praise the Lord. And you have made them a kingdom of priests and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And this isn't in Scripture, but every church, every believer, wherever they sit, any congregation, all around the world, everything is there. And they all cry out and they say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped but did you catch the the thrust of their praise verse 9 worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals why because you are slain and by your blood you ransomed people from every nation look at verse 12 worthy is the lamb what who was slain. And now he's worthy and he gets power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. And then the final hymn of heaven that we see is to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
Y'all go back to John chapter 19 and we'll finish. John 19.30 When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Church, he did everything. It's finished. All is accomplished. Your sacrifice has been made. Your debt has been nailed to the cross. He's attained and demonstrated all of his worthiness. And he's worthy of all praise. Everything in every way, it is finished and it is done. By his death on the cross, it's finished. Lord God, for everything that I I cannot do, through the, the plain reading of Scripture, through their studying, Lord, for everything that we cannot do, as people. God, thank you. That though it really should break our hearts to see Christ nailed to the tree and to see him suffer and mocked, to see the King of glory struck and slapped and, and for them to cry, crucify him. Lord, while that does and should break our heart, Lord, may we glory in the fact as hard as that is for us, may we glory in that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Because if he had not been crushed, we would not be here. Because his blood was spent, we can be forgiven once and for all. Lord Hebrews tells us that when, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time on until his enemies should be made a footstool. And that by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So it is finished. Lord, may we remember those three simple words are incredibly profound for the work that Christ did in that moment. In that moment on the cross, he shifted our eternity and has brought redemption to us. So, Lord, help us to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Lord God, we love you. Amen.